0: This is the last session. This is the session you all fall asleep in, all right? (laughs) You have permission, but I'll try and keep you awake. Um, And uh, we're going to be looking at the final uh, catalyst for growth pivotal circumstances. So, how are you doing? How are you doing? You know, uh, usually when you ask somebody how they are, the the polite way to reply is, fine, I'm fine. Uh, And I think it was from the um, Italian job, the more recent Italian job film, that fine starts for freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. (laughs) So usually, whenever I say, I'm fine, that's exactly what I mean, you know. I'm feeling totally freaked out and emotional. Uh, But you might know the story about, uh, you may know the story about Farmer Joe. Uh, And Farmer Joe... Uh, decided that the injuries he had from the accident with the haulage company was enough to take them to court. And in court, the haulage company lawyer questions Farmer Joe. Farmer Joe, did you or did you not say at the scene of the accident, I'm fine? Farmer Joe. I was just loading my favourite cow, Bessie, into the trailer. No, no, said the lawyer. I'm sorry. You must answer the question. Don't give me the details. Did you or did you not say? As I was saying, said Farmer Joe, I was just loading my favourite cow Bessie into the trailer and I was driving down the road. Now, I'm sorry, Your Honour. I'm afraid I must interrupt him at this point. I'm trying to establish that at the scene, this man told the police, I'm fine. And he's suing my client. I'm trying to establish the reliability of his testimony. So would you please ask him to answer the question? Well, the judge was getting rather interested in Farmer Joe at this point. So he said to him, go on, Farmer Joe, I'd like to hear what you have to say. Thank you, Your Highness. Anyway, I was just loading Bessie, my favourite cow, into the trailer, and I was going down the road, and suddenly this huge lorry goes across a stop sign at a crossroads and smacks into the side of my trailer. I was thrown into one ditch. Bessie was thrown into another ditch I was hurting badly and I didn't want to move at all and I could hear Bessie moaning and groaning in the other ditch I knew she was in a bad way just then a policeman arrived in a car with blue flashing lights and he went over to Bessie and saw that she was in a bad way and he went back to his car with the blue flashing lights and took out a revolver And he shot Bessie between the eyes. The policeman then crossed the road. (laughs) The gun was still in his hand. And it was smoking out of the barrel. And he looked at me and he said, your cow was in a bad shape. I had to shoot her. How are you feeling? (laughs) I'm fine. I'm fine. Absolutely fine. (laughs) Well, this uh, fifth uh, catalyst of Uh, for growth in faith is um, what one calls pivotal circumstances those defining circumstances in our lives when something particular happens it may be a good thing like a scholarship or a new job or getting married or a baby arrival or a promotion at work or it may be a painful defining moment it might be uh, a death or an illness or a divorce or redundancy and actually, you know, most of these circumstances can actually cut both ways. They can be an enormous uh, opportunity for growth in our faith and to push in harder to the Lord and, and uh, trust Him further, or it could actually destroy our faith. And a lot depends on how we actually use these moments, these, these pivotal circumstances. Because one thing's for certain, you don't see them coming. You can't program them into your life like uh, programming prayer or Bible study. They're just going to happen. And, and actually, what we think about the event is more important than the event itself. It's actually how we use the event or what we think about God in the event that is absolutely central. Uh, so I'm going to ask Susie just to share a little bit about uh, some of those pivotal moments, pivotal circumstances in her life. Um, so I
1: was going to share a little bit of my story. I hope that's all right. Um, I... So when I was first married at um, the age of 21, um, I would have probably called myself a Christian. I had been brought up, I'd gone to a convent school, and people just, you either were or you weren't, and I was. I didn't, have, I didn't understand what a relationship with God was. I didn't know anything about Christian faith, really, about um, the Christian jargon, if you'd like. And so I just, everything was going fine, I was a nurse, I, I married, my first husband was an Australian, he was a nurse, and, um, and we went and lived in Australia, and we had our first child, and, and I thought life was very easy, it was fine, I was a bit homesick, because all my family were here, but um, it was actually f- quite easy, and... Um, we were both working hard, but it was a good, normal life for a young couple. And we didn't really go to church because we were quite busy. Um, and, um, but that's, we didn't mix with other Christians, so it didn't really feature. Um, and then we had our second child, and um, at three months she died. And for both of us, that we worked in different ways, to be honest, we went. Um, it was. It pulled us apart. And we came back to England. We had an, um, for a bit, and then went back to Australia, and um, had another child. And so by then we had um, Seb and Kate. And um, we returned. Long story, but we returned to England, and um, and started running a business, and started going to church because it was opposite. And started mixing with other Christians and slowly we started to see a different way but not really understanding what that meant Um, and in that time I had we had two more children we had Beth and Daisy and then when Daisy was um, a week off being one um, my husband died and um, And during the time he was ill, he was ill for about three months. And during that time, he came to faith. Um, We were in London and uh, we were in, I was still in Gloucester, but he was in London at a hospital and he was being visited by people in, um, from HTB. And he came to faith and it was wonderful for him. But for me, what it did to me was I didn't get it. It just made me um, feel... My pivotal moment, I think, was that I felt completely let down by God. I had no roots, really. My roots weren't grounded at all. And um, so I just felt completely unworthy. I felt um, not loved. I wasn't good enough. Um, And so I had... And what it did, it brought my previous um, bereavement completely next to my bereavement, my new bereavement. And totally, I just, I wasn't good enough. I wasn't, I was unworthy. And so I think from that moment on, I became, as much as I would be shouting at God in a complete rage, and, and I did, and I stamped my foot, I became determined to do it in my own strength. And, and I did, really, for probably about eight years. And um, I ran our own business, kept running the nursing home, and kept being a mum. I was determined to do that well. and um, my But I kept also going to church. And that was the strange thing, was I kept going to church but also during that time, I did things that I was never very um, uh, proud of. I did things, I had an affair. I became, but I think I did it because I just wanted to be in control. I wanted my life to mean something to me. And so the, thing, the decisions I made were never with God, were never, I just felt so unworthy and so unloved. And fortunately, I had some good friends who came alongside me, just a few. um, And they persuaded me to go to New Wine. And I went to New Wine thinking I was going to take my children on holiday. And uh, if anybody's been to New Wine, it's not exactly like that. But um, (laughs) um, so I went, and um, within a couple of... couple of hours of being there I realized it wasn't going to be like that but fortunately the children absolutely loved it the ones that came with me and and then I had my pivotal moment um, sitting in a seminar and where I completely met God Um, one of the speakers was talking about so I don't even really know what he was talking about but he talked about how his child had died and it it was like God met me in that place. And, um, and what I met was I met Jesus. I fell in love totally with Jesus. And I had this time where I, um, I was standing there crying and seeing Jesus, who was totally saying to me, I love you. There is no more shame. There is no more guilt. I am yours. And I had this feel that sense that I had completely fallen in love And I never needed to have another lover and um, because I'd had um, lots of men knocking at the door and I'd had a real problem sending them away. Um, So to have that spoken to me was huge. And there wasn't lots of people praying around me or anything else. It was a very private moment for me on a one-in-one thing with God. And then from then on, um, for that next year, my life changed. I came back. People said to me, I look different. And I was suddenly realized my worth, my self-worth. And over the, the last however many years it's been, that's what it's been. It's my journey of knowing that actually everything is in Christ. Everything I do is in Christ. And unless I realize that, then I can't... I can't do anything for him because I have to be free enough to know that I am in him and he is in in me. So it's been transforming. And then the following year, after that year, in that time, we we got rid of the nursing home. I just felt that was the right decision. I had no idea what I was gonna do next, how financially we were gonna cope, what we were gonna do. And then um, and new wine was full and somehow we got got in. Some friends made a phone call, and we went back to New Wine, and um, I met met him.
0: <laughs> I like that. I didn't know how financially we were going to cope, so I married a vicar. <laughs> That'll learn you. Okay. <laughs> Right, well, let's, um, thank you, my darling, I know that that costs you to say all that stuff. Uh, Get a Bible, turn to, I didn't know you were going to talk about David when you came, but we're going to look at David and Goliath. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 17, familiar story, 1 Samuel chapter 17. One of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament. Everyone knows the story of Jonah, everyone knows the story of Noah, and everyone knows the story of the big man and the little boy with the sling. And it's a great children's story. It's in every children's book, every children's Bible, the story of, uh, of uh, David and Goliath. Um, but, you know, we need to remind ourselves, particularly with these children's stories, that they're not children's stories, all right? They're for us. This is real history for real people living with real faith in a real living God. Uh, so we mustn't sort of uh, minimize them as just, how oh, it's just a child's story. David and Goliath. And, uh, you know, when we look around this world, there are, let's face it, there are plenty of giants in this world. There's the giant of poverty, and terrorism, and refugees, and climate change, and political meltdowns. I don't know about you, I've never known so many changes in leaders of political parties as we've had in the last few months. I mean, the political meltdown in this country has been unbelievable. God help us with America. Oh my goodness! So I mustn't be political, must I? Hmm. And there are plenty of giants, not just in the world, but there are plenty of giants in our own personal lives. There are marriages under strain, pressure from children, job insecurity, serious illness, debt, etc., etc. And so it's very natural for any preacher preaching on David and Goliath to then say, "Okay, guys, what is the Goliath in your life?" What Goliath are you facing in your life today? Well, this story's got much to encourage us in that there's nothing we can't face if we have faith in the living God. And, uh, you know, there are many... I I don't know, I mean, our our parish uh, congregation at home are... It's almost unbelievable the amount of giants there are going on in people's lives. It's so why every day there's another crisis, isn't there? And the number of people that are seriously ill and facing, you know, and sometimes it's just overwhelming. You just think, oh God, all these giants. But so many of those people say to me, they say, Jonathan, I don't know how people do this without faith. I don't know how they face this kind of stuff without faith. So let's look at this story of David and Goliath. And I want to suggest that actually David meets three Goliaths before he meets the big man. All right? This isn't a story about one Goliath. This is a story about at least four Goliaths. And he meets them. And every single one of these Goliaths could sink him completely. And I think they're the sort of Goliaths that you and I are very um, know a lot about. The first Goliath is the Goliath of helplessness, the sense of being paralyzed and helpless into inaction. It's the kind of, there's nothing I can do, and, and so we lose heart. Uh, have a look at verse 1. It says, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokol in Judah. Uh, now, that's very active. They gathered their forces for war. But then you read verse 2, Saul and the Israelites assembled. That's not active. That's kind of a passive reaction. Well, we just assembled. We had to. So the Philistines, the way that the writer puts it, the Philistines are being very active and Saul and the Israelites are just being very passive. And it's in Judah. And then we get the description of Goliath himself in verse 4. We're told that he's a champion. He's over nine feet tall. He has impressive armor and frightening weapons. And his armor in verse 5 is literally, he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of armor of bronze. No, it doesn't say that. It says he wore a coat of scale armor. Did you notice that? In other words, he looked like a snake. Snake. And we think, hello, where have we met snakes before? Well, Adam met a snake in the garden. And now David's going to meet another snake called Goliath. And the reaction of Saul and the Israel was to be paralyzed with fear. Verse 11, it says, they were dismayed and terrified. In verse 24, it says, they all ran away from him in great fear. And actually, uh, you know, facing our problems without God, facing our problems, forgetting God, not acting as if God is there is a terrifying thing. And it's another example where the people of God forget him. They didn't forget about him. They didn't forget that he's there. They just acted as if he's not there. Until David walks on the scene, and it's absolutely wonderful. David walks on the scene. He comes bringing his brothers their packed lunches and he hears Goliath's taunts, and his reaction is totally different. Verse 26. Uh, David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That's the very first time David ever speaks, and the first thing he says, hey folks, do you know what? There is a living God. There is a living God. Why have you all forgotten that we serve a living God? He's not a dead God. He's not a hypothetical God. He is a living God. And David is the first one, and he begins to speak faith into the situation. This is not hopeless. It's bad. It's difficult, but it's not hopeless because we have faith in a living God. And when we meet those difficult circumstances, those pivotal circumstances, the first thing we need to do is we need to learn to turn immediately to the living God. And often it's, it's sometimes, the, not the last thing we do, but it becomes somewhere down the list of things we do. We do other things first. Now the first thing we must do is we must turn to the living God. Okay, that's the first Goliath that he meets. And actually, David could have been completely, you know, he could, have, he could have been out of the game at this point. If he'd gone along with the, the helpless parallelism of the others, then he, he would have said, oh, goodness, well, what, what could we do? But he wasn't. David said, no, no, come on, we've got a living God. The second uh, Goliath is ridicule and contempt and criticism. And it comes from the older brother, Verse 28. Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking. He burned with anger at him. Isn't that strange? Another example of a brother burning it with anger at a man of faith. And asked him, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know you're conceited and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle and again this is this is you know this is uh, the criticism of someone say you're no good you're you're just a useless person you're no good you know you you were meant to just look after a few sheep what are you doing here and criticism can completely destroy our faith now you know to be honest we have to listen to criticism and none of us like listening to criticism does anyone here like listening to criticism when someone comes up to you and criticizes you for saying no we don't like it none of us do but you have to listen to it because there just may be (laughs) just kernels of truth in it we may think oh actually i really ought to listen to that it's uncomfortable but it can be very disheartening particularly if it comes from a very angry heart and an unbalanced mind and I think one of the most disheartening things is to face constant criticism. Uh, I've just been on diocese of Gloucester, I've just been on a, on a clergy conference, which is not one of my favourite activities. But all the clergy in the diocese meet together and we spend a few days together. And, and actually some of these dear guys, they are so demoralised. They're so disheartened. Because they live with constant criticism. You know, I was talking to one guy, and, and he, he runs 17 parishes. He's got nine PCCs. I mean, one PCC is enough, isn't it? But nine <laughs> PCCs. And actually, do you know, a lot of the clergy in the Church of England, they're, you know, they're, they're nice guys and girls. They're nice people. They're doing a good job. They're, they're, you know, their are is all right. They're, they're not bad preachers but actually they get so worn down by criticism just the whole time. Well, I love David's reaction because, again, this could have stopped David in his tracks. Instead of which, he says this in verse 30. It's absolutely priceless. Uh, He says, now what have I done, says David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else. I love that, don't you? You know, he, he listens to the criticism, he says, okay, okay, right, now I'm going to turn away to someone else. In other words, I'm going to find someone else who's more balanced, I'm going to find someone else who's more positive, I'm going to find someone else who's with me on this. Yeah, we have to listen to the criticism, we have to listen to the carping, but do you know what, we need to find someone else. We, we need to say, fine, that must be very difficult for you, but I'm going to find someone else. <laughs> I'm going to find someone that's going to actually encourage me. Don't let criticism cause us to lose heart. And so in verse 32, David again comes out with faith to Saul. Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. That was Goliath number two. Goliath number three, again, is slightly different. It's inexperience. We lose heart because we know ourselves, we know our own resources, and we think that we're inexperienced. And now King Saul enters, and he's the experienced warrior. And so he says in verse 33, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. And he's been a warrior from his youth. You're not able. You're only a boy. And again, you know, our inexperience and we feel ill-equipped. We don't. We feel inadequate. We feel as if we don't have enough resources, and we can so often listen to the the, the enemy voice, which says, "No, you're no, you can't do that because you're only, you're only a young Christian, you're only a lay person, you're only a woman, you're only single, uh, you, you're only in, ex, in ex, you're, you're only this, you're only that," and we we sort of put ourselves out of the fight because we think. That we're only, well, and I can't do that because I'm only this, I'm only that. And I love David's response. (laughs) I just love this response in verse 34. But David said to Saul, do you know, when when I read this, I think think that David, what David did was he, he got up really close to Saul's face. You know, and, and he sort of eyeballed him. and he said, Now look, Saul, you look at my eyes when I'm talking, right? Look at my lips, hear my lips, all right, you watching me, keep attention. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Have you got that? When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I that's me, I went after it, struck it down and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I, that's me, the little lad sitting in front of you, I seized it by the hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant, that's me, has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Isn't that wonderful? God says, listen, I've already struck down lions and bears and God has been faithful to me every single time. And he's going to be faithful to me again. I'm not worried about this Philistine. I don't care how big he is. I don't care what armor he's got. He's nothing compared to what God has done in the past. And actually that, that, that principle goes right the way through uh, right through, through Scripture, that God actually prepares us. You know, we've all been facing metaphorical lions and bears. I'm sure you have. You, you must have done, because that's life. And God is preparing us every single step of the way for the future. And he's saying, now, look, I haven't let you down, have I, in the past, and I'm not going to let you down again. It's what, it's what happened to Daniel. Do you remember Daniel chapter 1? Daniel decided to take a stand in the canteen against the canteen food. And you would have thought, well, that's a very strange thing to take your stand against. But actually, Daniel did that in chapter 1, because in chapter 6, he's going to face a lion. And he found that God was faithful to him in the canteen, and he's going to be faithful to him in the lion's den as well. And the greatest aid to our faith is actually to look back and know that God has been faithful to us in the past. And he's been faithful to us through all those lions and bears that we've faced in our life's journey. That's why I love that, uh, that verse in oceans. I just love that verse in oceans. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me. What is it? You've never failed and you won't start now. Don't you love that? I love that line. I want to, you know, whenever I sing it, I want to shout it. You've never failed, and you're not going to start now. You've never failed, and you're not going to start now. You're going to be faithful. Um, uh, let me tell you a little bit about my part of the story with, with Susie, because um, uh, my part of the story is that, is that uh, we'd been in Egham about um, a year and a half, and then uh, Julia suddenly died uh, in the space of a month. Of very aggressive cancer and and obviously and i had two little boys of 9 and 11 obviously my life completely fell apart and uh, and the the congregation in Egham were, were my real ark they were amazing at rescuing me and supporting me and keeping me upright and and obviously life was absolutely you know grim beyond all belief and then after about six months after about six months after she died, I had a phone call from a film company. Yeah, you know, they're, they're at Shepperton, you know, just up the road. Uh, actually, they must be very near you, aren't they? Yeah. Anyway, I had a film company phone me up and said, look, we're doing a film, and we need a real vicar to do a funeral scene. Will you do it? Your name has been given to us. And I, I said, I didn't tell them why. I said, look, to be honest, I'm not doing funerals at the moment. So probably not. But just as a matter of inter- interest, whose film is it? They said, it's Kevin Costner's film. I said, I'll do it. <laughs> I'll do it. So, so I then spent two bizarre days on a film set with Kevin Costner and uh, Joan Allen from the Born Conspiracy and Born whatever it's called, you know. And uh, we spent these bizarre days doing a funeral scene and, uh, and, and doing it. We even did a scene, the three of us did a scene together, which was quite bizarre didn't make the film mind you in fact i didn't make the film kind of thing of it the the funeral scene was from a was a sort of distant shot from about five miles away and i looked like a little ant on the stage you know um but it was interesting it was a really interesting experience and it was very you know it was great it was it was an extraordinary sort of experience and anyway, about about it was about a couple of months afterwards i was talking to a friend of mine and i i thought well you know here we are back to real life again and so what was all that about why did god do that why did he you know why i can't make head or tail of it and this friend of mine said oh jonathan i expect god just wanted you to have a bit of you know a bit of fun really because you're going through such a grim time and i thought oh yeah okay and then and i don't you know i don't often say that god speaks to me Um, because I'm very wary of using that kind of language because I never know whether it's me or God or whether I've had too much pizza or something. So, um, but I had this absolutely vivid thought suddenly came into my mind. It was so vivid and it was so alien to anything else that I've ever thought. And the thought that came into my mind was this... It was as if God said very clear to me, Jonathan, if I can put you on a film set with a Hollywood star just like that, that is how your next wife is going to come. She will come out of the blue just like that. So relax. Oh, okay. And then you sort of kind of forget it and sort of life goes on. It was a year later and uh, at New Wine and I was sitting, waiting for my youngest to come out of his group from Boulder Gang. And I I saw this lady walking towards me. And I just suddenly thought, oh, my goodness. This is it. I just knew it. This is it. I didn't know anything about her. I didn't know that she was married. I didn't know anything about her at all. I just saw her coming towards me. I just thought, oh, my goodness. This is it. And then when she stood next to me and we started chatting and the uh, clever girl that she is, she said, uh, Jonathan, how's your wife enjoying new wine? <laughs> it's a good chat-up line, that. <laughs> Very good chat-up line. And I said, um, you know, I said, I, 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 she um, she died actually two, two years ago. And Susie then said, my husband died nine years ago. Now believe me, I could have, I could have proposed to her on the spot. <laughs> I could have said, okay, done deal. Let's do it now. Okay, let's go. You know, let's, let's get this done now. Um, but it, in fact, I did actually have to propose to her about seven times, I think, because it was a big thing, bringing two families together and getting six children together and whether that was going to work or not and whether life was going to work and you know, all these sort of things. So it did take a long time. It wasn't a straightforward path. But I think the thing that, has Just remains with me almost every day is, is a sense of God, you are so amazing. Now, if you're single here today, it doesn't mean to say you've got to go to New Wine and stand in queues. All right. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying that that's the way God works with everybody. But, you know, I just think, God, you're so amazing. You're so faithful. You, you've been so faithful. You haven't failed and you won't stop now. And I'm sure I'm going to meet other crises, you know, because life's like that. But I I hope at every single time I'll say, God, you are so faithful. You are good. And you're not going to stop now. And that's what David was saying. We may be inexperienced, but faith says God is faithful. God is strong. God is able. He's been with me before. He's never failed me, and he's not going to stop now. And then fourthly, of course, um, Big Goliath, the big man himself, arrives on the scene. And again, this this, uh, Big Goliath, of course, is that that you can lose heart due to weakness, not resourced enough. And you've got to kind of imagine the scene. You've got this valley, and you've got the Philistines on one side, you've got the Israelites on the other side, and in a valley, what's in the middle? The river. Thank you. So this little boy, on his own in the full view of both armies, comes out, goes down into the valley, goes down to the stream and picks up five stones. Incidentally, I don't know what the five stones represent. Don't go there, okay? (laughs) You don't need to go there, what, what those five stones represent. But he goes down and picks up five, and he's in full view. And whilst he's down there, Goliath comes down from the Philistine side and meets him. And is menacingly says to him in verse 43, am I a dog? Come here, I'll feed your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And David then replies in verse 46, No, you come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And not very original, you've got to admit. But, uh, you know, cut David a bit of slack because he's a bit, pretty new to this game. But is David just using bravado? Is he just sort of, you know, sort of trying to be, stand tall and trying to stand big? You might know the story about the, the man that arrives at the pearly gate. And uh, Peter says to him, look, you've not been particularly bad or particularly good in your life. Just tell me one impressive thing that you've done in your life. And the man replies, he said, well, there was one occasion, he said, when I once saw a girl being bullied by four thugs. And so I approached them and I punched one of the thugs in the stomach and another two thugs, I knocked their heads together and the biggest thug of all He was a big, mean guy, big, burly guy. And he had a ring in his nose, and I ripped it out of his nose, and there was blood everywhere, and I I poked him in the chest, and I said, if you bully this girl, you're going to have to deal with me. Peter says, wow, that's really impressive. When did this happen? Well, about two minutes ago. (laughs) David is not using bravado, but he's meeting Goliath with faith. Verse 47, It's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. And we don't use the weapons of this world. That's what Saul tried to do. Saul tried to give David his armor, and David says, No, I can't wear this, because we don't fight with the, bat- with the armor and the, ba- and, the- and the weapons of this world. We use the weapons of the kingdom." We use the weapons of prayer and compassion and love and generosity and hope and the gospel. That's how we fight our battles. And David then faced these four Goliaths. Helplessness, disdain, criticism, inexperience, and here the Goliath of weakness. And God gave David victory over Goliath. He gave victory with what the world sees as weakness and he faced Goliath with faith in the living God. In verse 50, Goliath dies. His last thought must have been "Stone me. There's nothing like this has ever entered my mind. And then in verse 52, it says this, and I love verse 52, the way that it puts it. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout. And pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath. In other words, the people of God, they saw that the victory was already won. That it's all been done, it's finished, the victory's been declared. Now they surged forward with a shout of victory. Now, the question is where are we in the story? Are we David? Are we the sort of brave man of faith? sort of, uh, you know, sort of going forth and uh, with faith and meeting our Goliaths. Because I think often we're, we're so unlike David, we're more like Eliab. But I think it's actually more accurate to say that we're not David in the story, we're actually one of the Israelites standing on the hill. And we're actually watching David fighting on our behalf. In verse 4 and verse 23, Goliath is described as the champion. That word champion literally means the man between. And Goliath was standing between the Philistines and the Israelites, but David is the real champion in the story. And he's standing in the place for those Israelites. And of course, a thousand years later, David's greater son was going to arrive on the scene, and he was going to become our champion. He was going to stand between us and judgment, between us and death. And he too, he faced a snake, a much more powerful snake than Goliath. But that snake was defeated through weakness on the cross. And when Jesus burst from the tomb, that snake was finally hurled down. As it says in Revelation, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil who leads the whole world astray. And actually, like, you know, we're really one of the Israelites in the story, and we're watching David, and David is saying to each one of us, don't lose heart, your servant is going to go and fight for you. The victory is won. He's already defeated the enemy on the cross, and he just waits for us as the church to surge forward, like the, like the Israelites, to surge forward and to proclaim the gospel. He so says, listen, the battle's, the battles been won. The victory is over. The, the, you know, it's, it's finished, as he said on the cross. Now, I want you to surge forward and proclaim Jesus as Lord. I, um, I like that uh, new song, The Lion of Judah, because there's that, that line, I can't remember where it comes, where it says, uh, he's fighting our battles. He's fighting our battles. And we have lots of battles. You know, the Christian life is a fight. Uh, It it is a fight. Every single day it's a fight. Um, But we need to fight knowing that Jesus has won the battle and he's fighting our battles for us on our behalf. And we need to put our faith and our trust in the one who will fight for us on our behalf. So as we uh, finish and wrap up this evening, let's... uh, Let's just spend just a few more moments in prayer.